None can doubt that it is the latter. Most certainly, then, an acknowledgment of these truths or doctrines enters essentially into the nature of a Christian profession. Number two, a profession of religion further implies an act of solemn dedication to God. There is a public recognition of Christian obligations, the doing of an outward act, expressive of the inward feeling of the soul, a feeling that you are not your own, that every faculty and affection and talent you possess belongs to God and is to be consecrated to His service and glory. At the moment you were born into the kingdom, you gave yourself away to God in an everlasting covenant. You gave up your heart to Him, and He graciously accepted the offering and wrote your name in the book of life, and He received you as an adopted child. This solemn transaction is distinctly recognized in the presence of the world. You publicly acknowledge God the Father to be your Father, Jesus Christ your Redeemer and Master, and the Holy Spirit your Sanctifier. And you promise in reliance on God's grace that you will render that gratitude and obedience which becomes a redeemed sinner and an adopted child. You recognize the great fact that inasmuch as you are bought with a price, you are not your own. You are bound to glorify God both in your body and spirit. Henceforth, wherever you may be, or in whatever circumstances your lot may be cast, you engage to live the life of a Christian. No matter though you should be cut off from Christian privileges, or surrounded by powerful temptations, or even have the alternative place before you of turning your back on your master, or of dying in his cause, you have solemnly pledged yourself to God, and have done it in the face of earth and heaven, that to your latest hour and latest moment you will be a soldier of the cross. The vows of God are upon you, and though you may forget them, though you may even trifle with them, you can never cast them off. They will accompany you to the judgment, and will contribute there to heighten your joy or deepen your agony. Number three, a profession of religion, moreover, involves a pledge to the church, and especially to the particular branch of it to which you join yourself, that you will be a fellow helper with them unto the kingdom of God. You engage to walk with them in the ordinances of the Lord, especially in that holy ordinance that commemorates your Redeemer's death. You engage to promote by every means in your power their comfort and usefulness. You promise to do this by the general spirituality of your example, by letting your light shine in all your intercourse with them, by stirring them up to every good work, by kindly admonishing them of their errors, and by lifting up the hands that hang down. You pledge yourself at the same time kindly to accept all their endeavors to your own edification, and especially to receive with meekness a fraternal reproof, even though you should be conscious that your motives or your conduct has been misapprehended. In a word, you engage to keep the best interest of your fellow Christians always in view, to walk together with them so far as you can in the love of God and in the comforts of the Holy Ghost. Thus assisting them to abound more and more in the virtues and graces and consolations of the gospel. Once more, a profession of religion implies a virtual declaration to the world that you are determined henceforth to be on the Lord's side. Not that in consequence of becoming a professor you are to withdraw from the world and decline all intercourse with it. That would be to run away from the field of your duty. But you are to break off all sinful connection with it. Perhaps you have been immersed in its pleasures and have cared for nothing but a round of amusement. Or perhaps you have thought lightly or spoken lightly of serious vital religion. It may, it may be that you have been associated with others in open opposition to the cause of Christ and that you have encouraged them while you have been encouraged by them in treating the salvation of the soul as if it were nothing more than a dream or a shadow. 
But in making a Christian profession, you proclaim to the world that you have done with all your contempt and neglect of religion, that they must no longer look for you in scenes of levity, that you are determined to brave the shame and scandal of the cross, and to stand forth resolutely and perseveringly on the side and duty and of God. What though worldly friendships may be offended, and may plead with you to relax a little from the strictness of your religion. What though worldly convenience must be sacrificed and difficulties unexpected and appalling encountered in the cause of Christ. In making a Christian profession, you virtually tell the world that all this is nothing to you. That in the strengths of God's grace you are determined to disregard alike both its frowns and its smiles, and to follow your master fearlessly whithersoever he may conduct you. I stop not now to inquire how far the lives of most professing Christians correspond with such a declaration, but that this is the simple language of the act by which you confess Christ before men, surely does not admit of question. Number two. Our second inquiry, to which we now proceed, respects the qualifications for a Christian profession. And here I remark in the first place that mere orthodoxy or a speculative belief of the truth of the Bible does not qualify a person for making such a profession. This indeed, as we have already seen, enters essentially into its nature, but that it is not the only thing requisite is proved by the view which we have already taken. You cannot in a scriptural sense confess Christ before men unless you firmly believe the doctrines which he taught. But these doctrines you may believe no matter how firmly, and if this is all, you cannot come worthily to the table of the Lord. Nor yet again does mere external morality constitute the grand qualification for making a profession. True it is indeed that a worthy communicant will be, must be, a moral man, but not every moral man is a worthy communicant. Christian communion in its very nature implies an exercise of the heart, of pious and devout affections. But a man may be externally moral, in so much that you can say nothing of his outward deportment that is not good, and yet not a gracious affection may have ever been kindled in his breath. Of course he cannot be qualified either to discharge the duties or to enjoy the privileges of a Christian profession. What then are the requisite qualifications for making a public profession of religion? I answer first, a suitable degree of religious knowledge. The truth of the gospel are the elements of all evangelical piety, so that some knowledge of these truths is absolutely essential to Christian character. But the knowledge to which I here refer relates especially to the nature and design of the ordinance of the supper to which in virtue of their profession Christians are admitted. In order to an intelligent participation of this Christian festival, which constitutes a visible badge of discipleship, they must have some knowledge of its connection with the redemption of the world, of the various lessons of humility and gratitude and obedience which it is designed to teach, and of the different channels of spiritual light and comfort which it opens to the heart. Many a professed Christian, for not being properly enlightened on this subject, and from looking for some unaccountable and almost magical effect to be produced upon his feelings, rather than for the natural operation of pious affections in view of truth rendered more vivid by sensible signs, has been sadly disappointed in his experience at the Lord's table, and instead of going away with his spiritual strength renewed, has gone away with his mind clouded with spiritual gloom. It is manifest, then, that no person who has not knowledge to discern the Lord's body in the Holy Communion is qualified to make a Christian profession. But while there must be knowledge to discern the Lord's body, there must also be faith to feed upon it. Hence another, and the grand qualification for making a profession of religion is true piety, 
that this is an indispensable requisite results from the very nature of such a profession. For the person who makes it hereby professedly gives himself away to God in an everlasting covenant, which he can never truly do without a renewed heart. And then again, the holy ordinance of the supper to which he is admitted is evidently designed for real Christians. For who but the Christian is qualified to engage in the celebration of it as a spiritual exercise, or to enjoy the consolations or receive the benefits which it proffers? Accordingly, we find that the members of churches which were established by the apostles are addressed in their epistles as saints, or those who had been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, so far as plain, but you will inquire what amount of evidence you are to gain that you are a Christian before you join yourself to the church. Are you to wait for an absolute assurance? Undoubtedly not. For upon this principle the church could scarcely have an existence, as there are comparatively few who in the course of their lives attain an undoubting assurance on scriptural principles that they have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. And in no ordinary case at least does such assurance constitute any part of the character of a new convert. No rule exists, therefore, the, for the direction of your conduct, but the commanding probability. Hence, you should wait for nothing but a rational and preponderating persuasion of your own piety, a persuasion which is the result of faithful self-examination, prayer, and diligent use of all the means within your reach of ascertaining your true character. But do you say that you dare not make a profession without an assurance that you have been renewed, as such a profession would be sin? I answer, how dare you neglect making a profession when God has solemnly required it at your hands, and of course the neglect is sin. In the latter case, that is, in neglecting to make a profession, you know that you do wrong. In the former case, that is, in making a profession without having attained a certainty that you have been regenerated, you do not know that you do wrong. On the contrary, you are furnished by this rational persuasion of your piety with the commanding probability that you are doing right and that your profession will be sincere and acceptable to God. Examine yourself, said the apostle to the Corinthian church, whether you be in the faith, clearly implying that though they were the professed followers of Christ, yet they did not even then know themselves to be Christians. Number three, I am now thirdly to illustrate the importance of making a profession of religion. Number one, it is important first as a manner of consistency. You indulge the hope that you have been renewed in the temper of your mind, that you have really given yourselves to God in an everlasting covenant, and you are secretly determined that you will crucify the world and cultivate all holy affections and live as becometh and expectant of the glories of heaven. Are such the inward exercises of the soul, such your desire and intentions? Then where is the consistency of remaining in the ranks of those whose views and feelings are all of an opposite character? of cherishing an attachment to Christ, and yet refusing to profess such an attachment. It is the very nature of true piety to be open and honest. But does it consist with honesty before God to believe in your heart that you are a Christian, and yet by making no profession of religion, virtually to declare in your life that you do not believe yourself a Christian? Far be it from me to say or to believe that a person may not possess a regenerated nature who never confesses Christ before the world. But if he be a Christian... He is certainly an inconsistent one. His conduct in this particular is inconsistent with his hopes and inconsistent with his general character. Number two, a profession of religion is important as a manner of influence. Let a person live in other respects a Christian life. And I do not say that his example will not be useful, but I do say that it will be far less so. 
than if he were publicly to recognize his Christian obligations. For in the first place, the fact that he is sensible that this inconsistency mars his character will be likely to fetter him in a degree to his exertions to do good. And then again, how obviously must the fact of his not being a professor greatly diminish the influence of the exertions which he actually makes. Suppose he was to undertake to reprove a backsliding professor, or suppose he should attempt to direct the attention of a careless sinner to the concerns of a soul. How obvious is it that, in either case, a question would instantly come up. Why attempt to enlist me in the service of a master, of whom you practically declare that you are yourselves ashamed? If religion be so important, why do you not proclaim your attachment to it by publicly declaring yourself on the Lord's side? But suppose, on the other hand, a Christian does confess Christ before men. How much weight and authority does this circumstance impart to his whole example and character? When he reproves carelessness and irreligion, whether in the professed friends or the open enemies of Christ, they feel that he is acting in his true character, that he is discharging his Christian obligations, and this will give them a powerful influence both with their understandings and consciences. Indeed, place him in whatever circumstances you will, and supposing him to be exemplary in his life, he will do his duty the more fearlessly and the more effectually from the fact that he is a professor. Number three, a profession of religion is as important as a manner of Christian improvement. Young Christians especially, from being surrounded with peculiar temptations, need all the helps to a religious life, they can obtain. They are especially in danger from the influence of former careless associates who are apt to take the alarm when they see them setting their faces towards heaven and often do their utmost to retain them in their own ranks. And if they remain out of the church, these careless associates are seldom with peculiar advantage. They are encouraged to greater boldness in their attacks, and their attacks are resisted, if resisted at all, with proportionably greater difficulty. And hence it has happened that many young persons who for a season promised well from having delayed to confess Christ before men have grown neglectful of duty and have lost at once the evidences and the comforts of a good hope. But a profession is not only important as a means of preventing the decline, but of promoting the growth of a gracious principle and affections. It secures on a large scale the privilege of Christian intercourse, of being counseled, admonished, and strengthened by fellow heirs of the grace of life, and especially it secures the privilege of joining in the commemoration of the Redeemer's death, which is fitted, above almost anything else, to revive the graces, to establish the hopes, and to advance the comfort of the Christian. Indeed, a profession of religion naturally brings the Christian out of the atmosphere of the world into the atmosphere of piety. It furnishes him, in many respects, with new facilities for doing his duty, and he who is sluggish and unfruitful in such circumstances has indeed good reason to believe that his profession is an empty name. Number four, I observe, once more, that a profession of religion is important as a manner of obedience to the command of Christ. The passages in which this duty is either directly enjoined or clearly implied are very numerous. All those passages in which Christians are exhorted to come out from the world, not to be conformed to the world, to let their light shine before men, and so on, are directly to this point. And the Savior himself has declared in the most solemn manner, Whosoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed, when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And again, in the institution of the supper, he says, This do in remembrance of me. And this institution, as we 
are elsewhere informed, was designed to be perpetuated till his second coming. Of course, the obligation to celebrate it is as binding upon all his disciples in all ages. You see then, my young friends, that it is not a matter of choice with you whether to make a profession of religion or not, other than it is a matter of choice with you whether you will obey a plain command of Christ or not. Do you say or do you secretly cherish the thought that you will obey all his commands except this? Ah, you are deceived in indulging such an imagination. For if you are willing to make a single exception, if you are not ready to follow the Lord fully, you need no other evidence that you are a stranger to the power of his grace. If any man will be my disciple, says the Master, let him deny himself and take up the cross, every cross, and follow me. And if you decline making a profession because you regard it as an unimportant matter and think you may as well go to heaven without it, woe be to that hope which has found a lodgment in your bosom. Two or three brief inferences will conclude this discourse. Number one, we are taught by this subject that a profession of religion should not be made without great seriousness and deliberation. You have seen that it is a most solemn and deeply interesting transaction a transaction which takes deeper hold of the realities of eternity than any other in which it is possible that you should engage, a transaction which identifies your character in a degree with the credit of religion, and which, if heartlessly performed, involves you in the fearful guilt of mocking God. Moreover, there is a great danger that you will deceive yourself in respect to your own qualifications for making a profession, that you will mistake a transient excitement of feeling for a genuine conversion to God, and that after having entered the church, you will discover the melancholy secret that you have never felt the power of divine grace, and that the church will discover that, in receiving you to her communion, she has taken into her bosom a formalist or a traitor. Take heed, then, my young friend, that in making a Christian profession, you act with due deliberation, and give yourself suitable time to investigate and ascertain your qualifications. Take heed that your self-examination be conducted with humble and fervent prayer, that you may be delivered from self-deception, and may be guided by the Holy Spirit to a true estimate of your character. And when you actually approach this duty, do it with something of the solemnity which you would feel if you were standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Approach it with an awful sense of the responsibility which it involves, and of your need of almighty grace to enable you to sustain it. And casting yourself on that grace, you shall hear a voice from heaven saying, It is sufficient for thee. Number two, in view of our subject, we perceive that it is a duty of everyone to make a public profession of religion. But what, says the youth, buried in the amusements of the world, is it my duty to join the church or profess myself a Christian and come to the communion table? I answer yes, undoubtedly. And the guilt of disobeying a plain command of God and a foreign contempt upon the blood of His Son rests upon you so long as you neglect to do this. Nevertheless, it is your duty to be a Christian before you profess yourself one, your duty to possess a temper that can relish communion with Christ before you perform that external act which indicates it. There is an order here to be observed, and that is first to become a disciple and then to assume the badge of discipleship. The latter duty you have no right to neglect, and you cannot perform it aright unless you have actually yielded up the heart to God. For the acceptable performance of the one necessarily implies that you have not neglected the other. I would say then to every one of you, come to the communion table, but see that you come with clean hands and a pure heart. Come having renounced the vanities of the world, having given yourselves to God in a perpetual covenant, and having resolved in the strength of His grace that you will live as becometh the gospel of Christ. 
Finally, in view of our subject, let those youth who have actually made a profession of religion frequently review the solemn transaction in connection with their subsequent conversation and deportment. Call to mind, my young friends, the solemnity of that hour in which you stood here, and in the presence of the church, and in the presence of the world, and in the presence of God, assume the vows of the Christian covenant. Call to mind the resolutions you then formed, the hopes you then inspired, and inquire how those resolutions have been kept, how those hopes have been fulfilled. Since that eventful hour, have you lived such a life as you then determined you would live, a life of prayer, of self-denial, of deadness to the world, of devotedness to Christ? Has your deportment been such as to recommend religion to your youthful associates, such as is fitted to impress them with a sense of its importance, or has it been careless and worldly, suited to confirm them in the delusions of impenitence, and to lead them onward in the path to position? These are solemn questions. I entreat you to answer them honestly to your conscience, and remember that wherever you are, or by whomsoever you are surrounded, you act under the solemn responsibility of having publicly covenanted with God. Lecture 13. Defense Against Temptation. Matthew 26, verse 41. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The circumstances in which these words were spoke were exceedingly tender and interesting. The blessed Jesus had retired to the Garden of Gethsemane for prayer, with a view to fortify himself for the sufferings which awaited him. Peter, James, and John, who had previously been witnesses of his transfiguration, he took with them on this occasion to be witnesses of his agony. After his entrance into the garden, he apprised the three disciples of the extreme anguish of his soul and directed them to remain where they were and watch, while he advanced to a more retired spot for the purpose of devotion. But strange to relate, the disciples during their master's absence, notwithstanding his extreme distress and the express command he had given them to watch with him, fell asleep. Finding them in this situation on his return, he gently reproves them by saying, What? Could you not watch with me? One hour? And then kindly subjoins the caution in the text, Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The temptation to which our Lord here especially refers is doubtless that to which his disciples were to be peculiarly exposed, of denying their master or deserting his cause. Their fond expectations of temporal distinction as the followers of Jesus were about to be disappointed, and he to whom they had looked as the deliverer of Israel was soon to die in ignominy. In these circumstances there was great danger, as the event proved, that they would become distrustful of Jesus and perhaps renounce all relation to him. Hence the caution in our text was peculiarly seasonable. But notwithstanding, this caution was originally, but notwithstanding this caution was originally addressed to the disciples in reference to a particular case, there is enough in common between their circumstances and those of all other Christians to warrant a general application of it. All other Christians as well as they, so long as they continue in this world, are exposed to temptation, are in danger of turning aside from the path of duty, and thus wounding their own peace and injuring the cause of their master. What the Savior says, therefore, to his disciples, he says to all, Watch and pray that ye enter not 
into temptation. There is one circumstance which seems to give this passage a peculiar application to Christians in the morning of life. It is that the words were originally addressed to persons who, whatever might have been their age, they could not have been far advanced, were young in the school of Christ. If the fact that their views of Christianity were exceedingly imperfect, and that they had had but little experience of the trials which must attend a Christian profession, rendered it peculiarly proper that they should be thus admonished, is there not a similar reason growing out of the circumstances of all young Christians why the same caution should be earnestly urged upon them? It will occur to you that, in the preceding discourse, we contemplated a youth and the solemn act of making a public profession of religion. In virtue of that act, you will instantly perceive that he sustains a new relation both to the church and the world. This is a point at which he openly and professedly commences his warfare with temptation. Regarding the young Christians in this peculiarly interesting attitude, it is a design of this discourse to illustrate the fact that he is in peculiar danger of falling, and to notice the means which the text prescribes for avoiding this evil. Number one, I am first to illustrate the fact that Christians in the morning of life are peculiarly in danger from temptation. This exposure results partly from a natural relish for worldly pleasure. With most youth. Previous to conversion, no doubt the love of pleasure is a ruling passion. There is a natural buoyancy of spirits incident to that period, which usually finds its element either in scenes of gay diversion or sensual indulgence. Whenever the heart comes under the influence of religion, it of course yields to the dominion of a new set of principles, and he who was before supremely a lover of pleasure now becomes supremely a lover of God. But though the change which takes place in regeneration is great, it is not entire. And the predominating principle of the renewed nature, though it no longer exists as a ruling passion, still continues to operate with greater or less energy. Hence it often happens that young persons after their conversion discover something of the same thirst for worldly pleasure, which had previously constituted their most prominent characteristic. As there is no lack of opportunities for gratifying this thirst, there is great danger that they will gratify it, though at the expense of disturbing their peace of conscience, of violating their covenant engagements, and of making the cause of their Redeemer bleed. That there are many pleasures growing out of our present condition, which, though not strictly religious, are yet rational, and may be innocently enjoyed by the Christian, far be it from me to question. Such are the pleasures resulting from the exercise of a cultivated taste, of a well-regulated imagination, of the social and benevolent affections, and even a pleasure of a still lower kind. Those which belong more immediately to the animal nature, the Christian may innocently partake, provided he does not transcend the limits marked out by the Creator. But what I here refer to under the name of worldly pleasure is that which is either wrong in itself, or which becomes so by excessive indulgence. Everything, in short, which has a tendency to check the spirit of devotion or to diminish our interest in eternal realities. Now that this is the tendency of what are commonly called fashionable amusements, even the more decent of them is too obvious to admit of question. All experience proved that they serve to relax the whole spiritual system. But towards some or other of these forms of worldly pleasure, 
The young Christian is liable to be drawn by the remains of his unsanctified nature, pleasure, more frequently than anything else, entangles him with her self in cord, and draws him away from the plain path of Christian duty. Closely connected with the preceding remark is another. The young Christians are in peculiar danger of yielding to temptation from their love of social intercourse. As a social principle is one of the original elements of our nature, it is also one of the earliest in its development, and perhaps it never operates with so much strength as in the morning of life. It is a principle common both to the good and the bad, and while it is capable of being made subservient to the most useful purposes, it may be perverted as a powerful auxiliary to the cause of irreligion. Most young persons previous to their conversion have been associated with those who are at least careless of religion, and who it may be ordinarily presumed still remains so. Now it is by no means their duty on becoming religious to stand aloof from their former associates, or to assume towards them any airs of artificial sanctity. But it is their duty to decline all that intercourse with them which is marked by levity and inconsideration. Let their intercourse be as frequent and as intimate as it may. Only let it be conducted on Christian principles. Let it minister to edification and not to destruction. But need I say that the young Christian is here in great danger of being led astray? He goes into a circle where perhaps all but himself are professedly devoted to worldly pleasure, and where it is expected that the conversation will not only be worldly but vain. It may indeed generally be presumed that if he ventures unnecessarily into circumstances like these, he goes without even a wish to resist the current. But suppose he be cast into such a situation by the providence of God, and unexpectedly to himself, there is still great danger that, from the influence of former habit, the fear of giving offense, or the dread of being looked upon as a reformer, he will at last connive at that which his conscience condemns, and perhaps may even give occasion to its being triumphantly said by his careless associates that they had one professor of religion among them, though his appearance would never have excited a suspicion of it. Whoever you are, my young friend, of whom this can be said, rely on it, you have already incurred the evil against which the caution in the text was intended to guard you. But does the young Christian ask me whether all his intercourse with irreligious people must be strictly of a religious character? I answer by no means, but it ought all to be of a useful character. In ordinary cases, if you would converse with an irreligious friend in respect to his own condition, it had better be a matter between you and him only. But the subject of religion is of such immense extent that it may be introduced in some or other of its various bearings. In almost any circumstances in which a Christian ought to be found, and that too without any appearance of ostentation, in general, I would say that, in all your social intercourse with the world, you are bound to let your light shine. And while you are always to avoid whatever is inconsistent with the Christian profession, you are to make it manifest directly by your conversation, as often as you have opportunity that you are on the Lord's side. But young Christians are in danger of perverting their social intercourse, not only with the irreligious, but with each other. It usually happens indeed that at their entrance on their religious life they have a strong relish for Christian intercourse and find great delight in an unreserved interchange of thought and feeling. But experience proves that there is great danger that it will not always be so. There is danger that, as their first religious joys subside, 
that they will approach the subject of religion with increased reserve till at no distant period it scarcely comes in, even by way of illusion. I doubt not that there are many to whose experience I might appeal for the truth of this remark, who can remember the time when they scarcely ever met, but to encourage and assist each other in their Christian course, whose intercourse has become scarcely less worldly than that of the world itself. But it may be asked, what harm, after all, results from this intercourse of which I have been speaking? Suppose young Christians do, when they are together, prefer some other topic of conversation to that of religion. Or suppose they occasionally enter a gay circle, and so far conform to the world as to spend a few hours in trifling conversation or vain amusement. Does this deserve any serious reprehension? I answer, I do not see how anyone with the Bible in his hand can justify it. What is its tendency in respect to the person who engages in it? Ask any who have had experience, and if you get the honest answer, I venture to say it will be that this manner of spending time has served to dissipate serious reflection, to unfit them for the duties of the closet, and to awaken remorse when they came to look at their conduct in view of the Bible and of eternity. And what is its influence? What must be its influence of those careless companions who have been witnesses of it, that you may estimate it aright? Take into view this important truth, that mere neglect of religion will just as certainly destroy the soul as open contempt of it. What then, though you have not profaned the name of God, or spoken irreverently of religion, or committed any act which the world calls immoral, yet by your presence and example you have lent your sanction to a spirit of levity, a spirit which you know must be dislodged from those very individuals, or they must perish, a spirit, moreover, which... As it is in their case, the ruling passion constitutes the grand obstacle to their becoming religious. And let me say they understand the language of your conduct even better than you do yourself. They regard you as lending the most practical testimony to the notion that religion is gloomy, as virtually telling them that you cannot find happiness in it, and therefore you have come to seek it in the world, or else on the other hand they are willing to admit upon your authority that religion is consistent with a spirit of levity, or perhaps even that levity called by the more decent name of innocent cheerfulness, makes part of religion. And if this be so, they, very charitably for themselves, conclude that they are either Christians already, or have little to do to become so. What more effectual means could you use to keep them at a greatest distance from serious reflection than this? I fear that many a professing Christian, if he could look into the world of woe, would see some there lifting up their eyes in torment, who would reproach him with having contributed by his example to that habit of carelessness by which they were carried down to perdition. Again, young Christians are in peculiar danger of yielding to temptation from the fact that their condition awakens in an unusual degree the vigilance and activity of the wicked. Of this fact no person of the least observation can entertain a doubt. It is not the Christian who has lived long, and whose character is firmly established, who is most frequently assailed by the arts of the wicked. But it is the youth who is just turning his back upon the world and setting his face towards heaven. This fact is often strikingly illustrated after a revival of religion, when many young persons are seen entering upon a Christian course, and all the wiles of the wicked are put in requisition in order to oppose them. And the reasons of this fact are as obvious as the fact itself. Young Christians have far less strength to resist temptation than belongs to a more mature Christian experience. Moreover, the wicked not only assail them under peculiar advantages, but they feel that they must do it, then or never. 
as there is little probability when they have once grown into established Christians that they will be carried back to the beggarly elements of the world. Now, is it not manifest that these circumstances invest the condition of young Christians with peculiar danger? On every side are those who watch for their halting, and among them it may be some with whom they are united in the most enduring earthly relations, by flattery on the one hand and ridicule on the other, by appealing first to one principle of their nature and then to another, here to the love of pleasure and there to the dread of being singular. They do their utmost to turn their footsteps backward into the path of death. Happy is that young Christian who amidst so many snares is enabled to walk uprightly and to escape unhurt. I observe once more that young Christians are in peculiar danger of yielding to temptation from the fact that the principle of religion in their hearts is comparatively feeble. I have already said that this is a reason why they are especially liable to be assailed by the enemies of religion. It is equally a reason why they are in peculiar danger of yielding to temptation. The rapturous exercises and burning zeal which are often manifested by the new convert are by no means to be regarded as any pledge in respect to future character, nor are they to be considered as indicating even the present existence of a high degree of religion. In almost all cases, these strong feelings after a little period subside, and he who at first imagined that he had faith enough to remove mountains soon learns that, if he has any faith at all, it is only as a grain of mustard seed. The principle of spiritual life is in his soul, like the principle of natural life in an infant, is feeble in its operations, and though almighty power and grace are pledged for its preservation, it is less able to endure the storms of temptation than after it shall have gained more strength and maturity. You thought, my young friend, while you were standing on the mount and overlooking your path to heaven, that you were girded for a conflict with all your spiritual enemies. The temptations of the world appear to you as less than nothing. And you suppose it impossible that you should ever even agitate the question whether you should yield to them. You seem to yourself to have large stores of strength at command and to be able to march with a firm step even to the martyr stake. But since you have come down from the mount to the actual reality of trial and conflict, oh, how differently does the case appear. Your resolution which you expected would accomplish wonders proves to be a feeble principle. Your zeal, which once rose in a bright flame towards heaven, has in a great measure died away. Your hope, which had formerly mounted up well nigh to assurance, has sunk to a low point of doubt, and perhaps sometimes trembles on the point of extinction. In short, you now feel that, if you are a Christian, the actings of spiritual life are so weak as scarcely to be discernible, and perhaps even to give occasion for distressing apprehensions that you are yet dead in trespasses and sins. In these circumstances, how much are you in danger of yielding to temptation? How much reason is there to fear that the world will gain a victory over you, which will mar your peace, cloud your evidences, and diminish your usefulness? Number two, having now attempted to illustrate the fact that young Christians are in peculiar danger from temptation, I proceed secondly to illustrate the means which the text prescribes for avoiding this evil. They are watchfulness in prayer. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. It is a truth distinctly implied in this direction, and one of great practical importance, that watchfulness and prayer ought always to exist together. Watchfulness without prayer is self-confidence. Prayer without watchfulness is presumption. 
In the one case we proudly repose for security in our own strength. In the other we pervert the scriptural doctrine of dependence to fatalism. They are two things which God has joined together in his word, and both reason and experience sanction the connection. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. We will now inquire in what manner the duties enjoined in the text are to be performed. Number one, in respect to the fact of these duties, watchfulness. I observe that you are to watch against the occasions of temptation. There are indeed temptations of various kinds involved in our providential allotments. The plain path of duty is often beset with them, so that you cannot decline to encounter the one without at the same time turning your back upon the other. In all cases of this kind, you are to go forward and hesitatingly, not doubting that you are called of God to the conflict, and that if you arm yourself suitably for it, he will give you the victory. The occasions of temptation against which you are to watch are of a different kind. They are needless occasions, those which offer themselves not in the course of duty but in the pursuit of mere worldly pleasure or advantage. For instance, something presents itself to your view as an object of desire, which is by no means necessary to your comfort, and which will not contribute in any degree to your usefulness. But in order to attain it, you must place yourself in circumstances in which you will be exceedingly liable to fall into sin. The case then is clear, that you ought not to place yourself in these circumstances. For while the good is to be obtained is little or nothing, the evil to which you are exposed may be immense. Or you may think to expose yourself to temptation where there is no other purpose to be gained than merely to test your own strength, to secure to yourself the pleasure resulting from a victory. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.